ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Usually when we talk about the housing shortage in Australia, the conversation sounds a little like this. Good evening. Queensland's housing crisis is deepening. Tonight. Rental affordability across Australia has plunged to all-time lows. New census figures show homelessness has been rising dramatically across the nation, particularly here in Tasmania. But in a country town in Queensland's far north, the Lions Club has taken a completely different approach. There's a woman the other day rang me and she's living in a car. Has been for three months and I just can't help it because I don't have anything available. That's why we've got to keep on building. To tackle the shortage of housing for older community members, the Lions Club is building units for needy pensioners to rent. Oh, since I've moved into this one, I don't want to leave. <laughs> no, it's really good here. Great units. They're made for the future. The doors are wider, so if you end up in a wheelchair, you can still get around. This gift to the community started right back in the 60s. So today in Australia Wide, we're going to take you to Melanda to find out how they make it work. We often get asked, you know, that we shouldn't be in the business of property. And I always come back and say, we're not in the business of property. We're in the business of looking after our community. I'm Sinead Mangan, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. It's been a few months since the only daycare and kindy centre closed in Mount Morgan, south of Rockhampton in central Queensland. But some parents are still reeling from the loss. They want a new service brought in and think the council could even set something up. It comes as a new national report looks at ways a universal system could be brought in to fix the issue of childcare availability, as Katrina Bevan reports. When mum Jessica Geisler heard her local daycare was closing, she was pretty shocked. Given it was the only centre in town, she knew finding replacement care for her two-year-old son Casey would be difficult. She says it was a big blow for the town of Mount Morgan. In the last year, we've lost the daycare centre and the um, aged care home, so it's kind of feeling like Mount Morgan's slowly getting closed down. Like, what are they going to shut down next sort of thing? The previous owner of the centre told the ABC it closed mostly due to staff shortages. And though two companies had looked at buying the business, they ultimately pulled out. Fellow mum Josephine Anderson-Ross had her four-year-old son enrolled in kindy when the centre closed. Oh, he does miss it. Like He enjoys going there, playing around, socialising, getting activities done, developing. I've noticed his speech is slowing down since kindy's closed. Jessica Geisler says the only other option is driving to a centre in Rockhampton or Gracemere, which often have long wait lists. No options other than playgroups, which is on a certain day of the week. And um, it's kind of hard when you have to juggle that and do other appointments as well, because I've got three other older children and one has um, high needs. Mount Morgan isn't the only town struggling with daycare availability. The Productivity Commission's draft report into early childhood education and care, released overnight, recommends the federal government provide more support in areas with thin markets where providers don't want to invest. The report also recommends a universal system for childcare in Australia with an independent body set up to oversee its progress. 
The report says though fair work processes currently underway are looking to address workers' pay and conditions in the sector, it also wants to see better support for career progression to tackle staff shortages, as well as an increased subsidy for low-income families as disadvantaged children benefit the most from early childhood education but are also the least likely to attend. The federal government says it's making progress on the findings already, cutting costs and increasing funding for new centres in rural communities. Back in Mount Morgan, Jessica Geisler would like to see the Rockhampton Regional Council step in. There's a lot of empty buildings in Mount Morgan. There's an old school that's up the back of the primary school. Um, I think it used to be a Catholic school. Um, that's been empty for as long as I can remember. The old Red Frogs building, it is to my understanding that the Rocky Council does have a daycare centre in Rocky, so I don't see them not being able to open one in Mount Morgan, Um, whether it's getting the employees to Mount Morgan, that's an issue, but I'm sure there'd be ways for them to apply for funding to do that. Josephine Anderson-Ross agrees and says while it's great the state government is making kindy free from next year, that's not much help in places where there is no kindy. She's started an online petition to try and remedy the situation. Well, we like to have a kindy up here or if not, just a couple of days a week. The Rockhampton Regional Council has operated a childcare in Rockhampton for many years, but it says that was established before local councils were amalgamated and it's now not considered a core service for expansion. It says it wouldn't be possible for it to run a centre in Mount Morgan, but there is opportunity for a new provider to come to town, especially with new investments in the local mine and water pipeline underway. Katrina Bevan with that story and public hearings for the inquiry she spoke about are due to start next year with the final report to come in in June 2024. This is ABC Australia Wide. With more than 3,500 Queenslanders waiting for public housing over the age of 65, one country town in the far north is tackling the problem a different way, thanks to a most unlikely landlord. The Melanda Lions Club has been building homes for age pensioners for more than 50 years, and today it's officially opened two new units. The club now has 18 units in this town, but there's still around 20 pensioners on the waiting list. From Queensland's far north, reporter Sharni Kim has this story. Hey, Gail. How are you? <laughs> yes. Gail Coochman has just moved into her new home. Ah, oh, gee, you've got it looking nice, mate. I'm pleased with how it's all coming. A brand new one-bedroom unit in the far north Queensland town of Melanda. Oh, I just love the fact that they're standalone, they're spacious enough, they're just so airy and the community itself is lovely. It's a bit of a change from where the 77-year-old pensioner was living until recently. When I came up here, I moved into an old bus on a lovely five-acre property, but there were a lot of steps getting up into the bus and then more steps in the bus. So my daughters decided it was probably not a safe situation. And on the same property, there was a little, what they called um, a unit. It was a tin shed. Look, it was livable, but it was very cold in the winter and very mouldy, and I developed a lung condition. Miss Coochman's new landlord is her local Lions Club. In recent years, the volunteer group has built five new units in Melanda for aged pensioners. Lionel Smith is its project manager. We thought, well, we only have one shot at this, so we'll do it the best we can. 
So we've put solar on the roof because power is a big cost for pensioners. So we thought, well, that's got to be a must. We've put aircon in all the units because the temperatures are getting higher and higher every year, so we thought we'd do that. Rent is kept as low as possible, about $200 a week, thanks to volunteers helping with administration, gardening and tenant support. It's not about money, it's about care. And it's very hard, well, I know for banks especially, they say, well, why aren't you charging $300 a week for these? Because we, we don't want the money, mate. We want to look after the people. And the people can't afford 300 So we'll keep our rents as low as possible. I could see in the future if interest rates come down, uh, our mortgage repayments come down, that we would actually lower our rents, which is unheard of in the commercial area. The club also owns some older units and now has 18 in the town across three complexes. This unit project's been going for a long time, about 50 years in fact, when the members of the Melinda Lions Club were made aware that there was a shortage of accommodation for pensioners. These are the people uh, who retire before they go into care. So they've got 10 or 15 years there where they really didn't have any accommodation that was affordable and uh, suitable. You know, you really got to take your hat off to the Lions Club members back in the 60s who had the foresight to sort of say, OK, let's, let's do something now. You know, they built um, 10 units at Lion Street. A lot of them were built by the members themselves, which you can't do anymore. Without them doing that, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing now. The club remortgaged its older properties to build the new complex and a secured vacant land next door to build two more units next year. Mr Smith says it's vital, with about 20 pensioners on the club's waiting list at any one time. We got applications from people now that are in dire strait and it's really sad. There's a woman the other day rang me and she's living in a car. has been for three months and I just can't help it because I don't have anything available. That's why we've got to keep on building. Melanda has about 2,000 residents, nearly 40% of them aged over 60, and just two rental vacancies currently advertised online. Pensioner Peter Carlo counts himself one of the lucky ones. He's been a Lions Club tenant for several years and also volunteers as its groundsman. Oh, since I moved into this one, I don't want to leave. <laughs> no, it's really good here. Great units. They're made for the future. The doors are wider, so if you end up in a wheelchair, you can still get around. You know, the thought of everything. Lions clubs are autonomous, and each decides how it'll use its funds to support its local community. Some in Australia run caravan parks, retirement villages and short-term accommodation for people receiving medical treatment. But the Melanda Club is one of the only ones in the country to offer long-term rental housing. Lionel Smith again. It's a wonderful thing here, but it may not necessarily be a good project for another club. It's a big commitment. We've probably got, you know, close to $3 million tied up in buildings and property. And you often wonder, could you do something better with that $3 million? Um, we don't think we could. We often get asked, you know, that we shouldn't be in the business of property. And I always come back and say, we're not in the business of property. We're in the business of looking after our community. Melanda Lions Club project manager Lionel Smith ending that story there from Sharni Kim in northern Queensland. 
We're still a week out from the beginning of summer and yet around the country, bushfire season is well and truly upon us. As I speak, firefighters are battling an uncontrolled blaze in Perth's northeastern suburbs that's now been burning for two nights and two days. Bushfires are capable of causing a degree of damage like almost nothing else in Australia and the unfortunate fact is some are lit intentionally. It begs the question, what's going through the mind of someone as they strike the match? Dr Bruce Watt is an Associate Professor at Bond University in the Gold Coast and he spent a great deal of time looking into the psychology of an arsonist. I spoke to him a little earlier and asked him what motivates an arsonist. First of all, we have a group of both juveniles and adults who are involved in a wide variety of different forms of antisocial behaviour. So they might be involved in uh, property theft, uh, damaging property, being involved in violence, uh, stealing motor vehicles, uh, and lighting fires is a part of their broader antisocial behaviour. Secondly, we have a group where it's a maladaptive form of expression. Often people with mental health difficulties, poor communication skills, and they're trying to draw attention in an ineffective way and potentially dangerous way uh, to their own internal distress. Uh, A third group, uh, which is not as likely to ignite a bushfire, uh, but may set fire to other people's property, um, and motivated more by grievance, where they have a perceived grievance either towards an individual or an organisation, uh, and they take the approach to try and seek revenge uh, against a particular target. Uh, and then you have a worrying group, which can be combined with, with other categories, where someone has a high level of interest in fire, they find fire quite powerful uh, and exciting, uh, and they might have a mistaken belief that they can control it, um, which they, in reality is they can't, especially when uh, we enter into a bushfire season. So Bruce, why do you think it's important to understand the psychology of an arsonist? Uh, well, I think it's critical to understand what motivates the behaviour to be able to target. Uh, we would recommend different approaches based upon uh, what's driving it. For example, somewhere it's part of a general antisocial pattern Uh, work with them to develop a greater understanding about the adverse consequences that they're causing, um, strengthen more effective problem-solving with ties to more conventional activities. Someone with maladaptive expression, for example, you would work towards addressing any uh, mental health difficulties combined with giving them tools to be able to communicate uh, any distress Uh, more effectively Uh, and then to jump to the other group if you're looking at peers uh, whether adolescents and they're lighting fires as part of a group uh, a key strategy is uh, working with parents and working with schools um, and the young people so that they can be involved in more suitable activity uh, moving away from uh, other peers who are perhaps involved in antisocial behaviours Um, So the type of background helps us to inform the type of of treatment uh, that we would be looking at. When you speak to arsonists, are they aware of the destruction that they're causing or is it something that dawns on them and a surprise after the fact? Sometimes, well, quite often it's more of a surprise after the fact. They um, be cognizant that they are involved in potentially dangerous activity but then they can have the mistaken belief that they can control the fire 
um, whilst it's powerful, they will still be able to manage that situation. Um, so certainly a number of people, they think they can have greater control and it, it, it escalates further. Um, young people can definitely overestimate the, their capacity to be able to control it. Um, but then if you have someone where they are particularly, we have a combination of antisocial and they're geared towards a grievance, they're expecting to cause a lot of damage um, and it might, might even be planned knowing what they're going to do. Um, and and that, yeah, that's a concerning uh, group. Do they feel remorse? Um, quite often there is, um, particularly where people did not anticipate the uh, escalation of the fire um, or they did not anticipate damaging other people's property uh, or endangering other people's lives. So whereas unanticipated outcomes, uh, there generally will be uh, remorse and regret for their actions. Uh, but where someone is deliberately motivated to target someone else um, and target someone's property and that's what's damaged, um, then generally there wouldn't be remorse for that type of action. Now you have looked into it before I let you go. What do you hope will come out of this research? Well, what we're currently looking at is further examination of adolescents who involved, who are involved in lighting fires, plus they're involved in other forms of antisocial behaviour. And we're looking at what, in more detail, what's, what's driving those uh, behaviours. So we currently have some uh, data across Queensland and New South Wales that we're uh, examining, uh, and we should have uh, further information about that, hopefully in the not-too-distant future. Dr Bruce Watt, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. Traditional owners from Australia, Samoa and Papua New Guinea have come together to develop a coral reef monitoring project for the Pacific. About 20 leaders have gathered for a week-long workshop in the Bundaberg region, looking at blending traditional knowledge and modern technology to best protect the reef. Our reporter, Grace Whiteside, was there. The reefs were all washed out. There were completely no corals. On Christina Gabriel's island home of Samoa, there are still telltale signs of a catastrophic tsunami that engulfed its shores almost 15 years ago. Ms Gabriel remembers living on the eastern side of the island when in September 2009, a rare double earthquake created waves up to 22 metres that hit Samoa, American Samoa and Tonga, killing almost 200 people and destroying villages. Beneath the water's surface, where food sources are so crucial to her nation's way of life, recovery remains slow. So at the moment we need uh, assistance to um, replant and improve the, 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 the fishing, you know, and get more food from, from the sea. She'll take information from the cultural exchange back home. To further our knowledge, to learn more so that we can go back and, you know, help my people, uh, people in our community. The main thing is to protect and, and conserve our marine uh, reserve back home. So we need to improve because I, we hardly get spaces that, used to, that live in, the, in those areas. So we want to, um, to get more, more food for our people in the future. 
Yashika Nand from the Australian Institute of Marine Science knows it's important to have traditional expertise in coral reef management. Climate change and other impacts, like there is so much disturbance, there's too many cyclones happening, overfishing, there is a lot of like land-based activities that's affecting their resources, so they're kind of trying to bring in some of the things that has happened in the past and some of the new innovation together to manage resources. Papua New Guinea representative Naomi Longa is a co-director of the Sea Women of Melanesia, a group that trains women in PNG and Solomon Islands to help protect reef zones in their communities. We have a lot of challenges like trying to get this information to communities because obviously communities, they cannot understand graphs and figures like on the charts. The plan is to create an online dashboard, a single place where all of the live data can be found. We can use that to sort of relay the information to the communities and tell them what sort of fish they see out there and is it like increasing or decreasing in population, something like that. And that is something where it's simple and community can understand and they know what's happening out out in their reefs. Coral monitoring projects are already underway in the Wide Bay region. Here's Gadarjal, Land and Sea Ranger, and Tarabalang Bundaman, Des Purcell. There's a lot of runoff in our area from local farming and stuff, so we want to know that our our water is healthy and and our fish stocks are protected and um, seagrass for our turtles, dugons. We do our best um, to try and uh, conserve and manage those practices that we have done so for a long, long time with uh, Western science and, um, and new technology. So coupling traditional ecological knowledge with new scientific um, knowledge. So, and it's working, I find that it's working, it's working well. For local Gurang elder Lola Tiger, the cultural exchange is yielding good results. I think our, our little part of the world's in good hands. At the moment, it's in good hands. And the more we educate people uh, and the more people want to be educated, we will be in good hands. So, yeah, it's very important that we save our planet. Gurung elder Lola Tiger ending that story there from Grace Whiteside. And finally, on today's show, let's head to the Mid-North region of South Australia, where the community's first Pride picnic has one older member of the gay community reflecting on how far they've come. In Barra, 150 k's north of Adelaide, our reporter Isabella Carbone went along to the picnic just in time to see the handbag tossing competition kick off. In a park in South Australia's Mid-North, the regional town of Barrow is hosting its first ever gay pride picnic. Located two hours north of Adelaide, the inland town has a population of about 1,100 people and is home to a passionate group of volunteers. They've helped put on the third regional picnic in the park as part of the state's annual feast festival celebrating LGBTQIA pride. One of the festival organisers, Deb Selway, was born in Adelaide but has spent most of her life in regional Queensland and South Australia. She's been an out lesbian since the 1970s and has seen a lot of change in that time. Coming out in the late 1970s, early 80s, I could not even imagine having an event like this in country South Australia, little and anywhere else. I mean, it was unthinkable. And um, we were all in the closet then. Teachers who came out as gay at that time would be sacked. 
it was very, very uh, tough time for the gay community. But as we go forward, it's very positive now. We want to be out and we want to be proud because particularly for young men in country rural areas, there's still a very high suicide rate and in fact four, uh, 14 times more likely to uh, attempt suicide. So we haven't won in that respect yet, but we are gaining ground. We're here to support young people. We're here to support all identities and we'll be there for you. Deb Selway said since she came out in the late 1970s, much has changed for the LGBTQIA plus folks in regional South Australia. I think there are services that are helping, like Lifeline and others that embrace the LGBTIQ plus community and offer services for them. Like even in the media, in the media, if you turn on the TV day, today, almost in anything, whether you're watching Netflix or, or local TV, you will see gay and lesbian LGBTIQ plus people. Wouldn't have happened in my day. There was only one or two films we could get excited about back in 1979, 1980, I can tell you. That was Deb Selway talking to our reporter Isabel Carbone in regional South Australia. And that is Australia-wide for this week. Thanks to Asha Couch for all of her production help this week. And I hope you all have a lovely weekend. Speak to you again next week. Cheerio. ABC Listen.